welcome to Fuds on Film. I'm Drew, with me over there, Scott. That's me. And this is one of our Compare and Contrast episodes. And in this particular episode, we're carrying on our theme from the last podcast of journalism and film. And this time we'll be looking at two films that focus on war reporting. One with a writer, the other with a photographer. And we'll be looking at the effects that the wars they're documenting have on them. Both films, the German film Die Falschung, which was released in the West as Circle of Deceit. Well, I say the West, it was released in English-speaking countries because Germany is the West. Um, <laughs> as Circle of Deceit and the US film Salvador are entirely coincidentally from the 1980s and both are about civil wars that began in the 1970s, though only one of those purports to be based on experiences of a real person. Really, that's all the intro that I have A, prepared and B, thought was necessary, so let's just fire straight into these films and start talking about them, which is, after all, what we're all here for. Oliver Stone's 1986 film Salvador sees a deadbeat, drunk photojournalist, Richard Boyle, James Woods, travel to the Central American country of El Salvador to document the civil war taking place there between the right-wing military government and a coalition of left-wing guerrilla groups. Another of those shameful wars by proxy between the USA and the USSR which tended simply to destroy nations. Not that Boyle picks this destination because it is a story that needs to be told. No, it's because he prefers Salvadorian nightlife to that of other war zones and because young ladies of negotiable affection are particularly cheap there, as is the living, and because he thinks he can make a few bucks as a stringer. With such noble pursuits in mind, Boyle travels south by car from San Francisco with his DJ friend Dr. Rock, Jim Belushi, accompanying him. Despite witnessing a grisly scene within moments of entering the country, for much of the first hour of the film, Boyle gets drunk, with occasional forays into sex with his Salvadorian girlfriend Maria, Mexican actress Elpidia Carrillo, who you may be familiar with from Predator, and only briefly going out to work to shoot photographs, and seeming particularly disinterested when he does so. But as tensions increase in the country, and in particular in the capital of San Salvador, Boyle's conscience begins to awaken, and he starts doing what a good journalist ought to do. Things begin in earnest with the assassination in the middle of a mass of Archbishop Oscar Romero, José Carlos Ruiz, another Mexican, much of the film is shot in Mexico, and who gives the film's standout performance even in his small role. There follows an attack on female charity workers, and the danger to Boyle and his colleague John Cassidy, John Savage, increases as they try to document the hostilities. As the right-wing military gain the upper hand, Boyle becomes persona non grata, and he must find a way to extricate himself, as well as Maria and her child, from the country and return to the US. Okay, so I need to get to the elephant in the room and get it out of the way, because this is another film in which I find it a little difficult to separate the art from the artist, though in this case the failing is the filmmakers and not my own. Oliver Stone, as I'm sure you know, is a left-wing idiot hole with a history of believing in conspiracy theories and who has been accused of having behaved inappropriately towards women. James Woods is an inflammatory right-wing idiot hole who has been accused of having behaved inappropriately towards women. These idiot holes should probably cancel each other out, but in fact it's additive, and we have double the number of idiot holes. In Woods' case, it doesn't really matter, but in the case of writer and director Stone, it is because while his politics were an obvious influence on the film in 1986, they colour it even more now, 30 years later, particularly after his trio of documentaries on Fidel Castro. 
Certainly. It can be difficult to distill the essence of a multi-year civil war down into a two-hour film, but Stone eschews most of the shades of grey and provides a somewhat simplified black and white take of the sort more typically favoured by mainstream US audiences, but perhaps surprisingly so given his considerably more nuanced approach in the vastly superior Platoon which was released later that very same year. The film opens with a statement that it was based on actual events, which seems, at least, a little more nebulous than based on a true story, but only mildly so. But it appears, and it was criticised thusly at the time, that the film skews unfairly towards the left-wing guerrillas. These guerrillas are typically portrayed more heroically and are always accompanied by folk music. We really are left in no doubt that these are the people, when in fact there was plenty of despicable behaviour to go around on both sides. One scene does see him have a half-hearted stab at showing the guerrillas committing an atrocity, but you can tell his heart's not really in it. <laughs> you can tell that scene was fairly hastily added in at the last minute. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's, I mean, it's, it doesn't have tremendous dialogue throughout the film, but that one in particular seemed like it was written on the back of a fag packet two minutes before it was supposed to, yeah, to so it's, like, it's like, oh, you're as bad as the other side. Oh, <laughs> no's. Yeah, I mean, that is largely spelled out to it. The, the, the dialogue in that scene is largely... Don't, don't do it. Don't kill that person. You'll become like them. <laughs> Look, I've known writers who use subtext and they're all cowards. So. <laughs> you just imagine that the the shooting script for that film just has that stuck in there as a post-it note which just says yes. <laughs> in large capitals, balance scene. Yes. Salvador shares an issue I very much had with Oliver Stone's 2016 film Snowden in that the main character and by extension the audience only becomes truly motivated when the wrongdoing directly affects US citizens. In this case, the rape and murder of four US church workers. This is horrific, but we've been privy to many horrific scenes up until this point. Summary executions, piles of burning bodies, Archbishop Oscar Romero's execution, which, unlike in real life, the film's boil was witness to, none of which seemed to have prompted a photographer to step out of his hedonistic lassitude, unlike the murder of the nice white ladies from back home. <laughs> there is a, a none-too-subtle attempt also to liken the actions of the US border guards to the venal officials in El Salvador, but that falls flat because there's simply no equivalence. The US officials are doing their job, checking that entrants into the country are legally permitted to be there, in a perfectly acceptable manner. The rights and wrongs of Boyle's girlfriend Maria's presence in the USA and whether she should be given asylum, etc., is something that happens afterwards in the courts, something Stone no doubt knew well, and it feels rather cheap. Now, one of the strongest threads running through Salvador is the blaming of the US government for its harmful influencing and enabling of the violence. The film indeed ends with the message that El Salvador continues to be one of the largest recipients of US military aid in the world. And that may very well be so, but the argument loses credibility because so much of the story as filmed betrays the director's own politics. I recall enjoying this a great deal more when I first watched it with Craig many, many years ago, but I'm considerably less enthusiastic now. I'd argue that it's still worth watching, for historical interest if for no other reason, because even at the time, the civil war in El Salvador didn't get the attention it merited, and it must necessarily be less well known now but it suffers considerably from being too simplistic in its depiction of the participants, 
the sneering villains, the idealistic guerrillas, the ineffectual politician, the cigar-chewing, commie-hating military man, and for not trusting its audience to appreciate the complexities of the situation. So, interesting, probably worth watching, but very much one of Oliver Stone's lesser works, which is quite frustrating because I'd remembered that it's been quite good. <laughs> yeah, that, that military man you mentioned as well was straight out of Doctor Strange Love, isn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. He... Jay kept making me think of, actually. Not that it looks like him, I mean, he had a moustache, he was different, but he made me think of Robert Loja in Independence Day. <laughs> for some reason, but he's he's almost cartoonish. Yeah, uh, this this was the first I'd seen of it, and I'm largely in line with what you were thinking. Uh, this time round, in retrospect, it is pretty much this kind of perfect storm of Oliver Stone, uh, Stone's views and interests, isn't it? You know, political revolutionaries, American Empire, flawed protagonists, and conspiracy theory. I suppose not really conspiracy theory in this case. It's very much uh, out in the open, but yeah, it's, it's just a bunch of threads that are sort of bundled together in this film that never really amount to an awful lot. And I think he's made better films by pulling those threads out individually and looking at them in separate films, but when it's sort of rolled up into this ball, it's a little bit of a, a bit of a mess, really. And I mean, even his politics, which when some of which are probably closer to my own politics than, say, James Woods are mm-hmm. nowadays, but I actually remember thoroughly enjoying Commandante. And while it's maybe not as neutral a documentary as it ought to be, and his politics are there, it's kind of more acceptable in there. Whereas it colours the story here in a way that definitely denigrates the effect of the film. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily mind his politics getting into his filmmaking. That's part of the point of Hoverstone's career. But it, in, in this instance, it's just all a bit ham-fisted and simplistic yeah, yeah. and you know boiled down to a degree that it doesn't really hold any truth anymore. Just simply looking at it, you, mean, you don't really need to know an awful lot about the Salvadorian uh, conflict to know that this is no way a reflection of reality. It's a... Uh, yeah, it's, it's just very told in strokes so broad that they're not really strokes anymore. It's just one big muddy mess. I mean, I, I suppose begrudgingly you've got to defend James Woods' right to be just the worst person, but <laughs> that doesn't mean you can't form an opinion on him just being the worst person. And James Woods is just the worst person, like really, really bad. And I find it very hard to, these days to separate any film he's in from James Wood, the absolute prick of a man that is currently rampaging around. And as much as Oliver Stone's letting his politics get in the way and has, has his flaws, just there's something just nasty about James Wood's belittling and twister, twisted and malignant. And uh, yeah, yeah. He, he's not, but it's safe to say, he's not someone I enjoy seeing in a film. Uh, I don't think he's been in anything of like this millennium. Um, if yeah. it has, it's very much been in spite of rather than because of him, you know. I have had that issue too. Because, yeah, I was trying, you try to separate the art from the artist if you can. But I mean, I just found James Wood such a despicable person. Uh, and I mean, his character here, I mean, the character clearly has a conscience and he's, he's less morally dubious than a lot of characters in this sort of situation might be. As much as, like, you know, he's kind of. Uh, hedonistic slob at the beginning uh he's a bit selfish he's not really bad um and i kind of wish that there was something actually more to that because yeah th- this film is so simplistic but his character does have this conscience that he's going to try and do something 
Yeah, I but, didn't buy it though. I didn't buy it. I, look, when James Woods was being an asshole, I bought that because James Woods <laughs> yes, is drawing from a lifetime of personal experience to really nail that role. But as soon as he had to do anything that showed like human emotion or non-sociopathy, I just I just didn't buy him at all. But I mean, to be fair, it's hard for a reptile to act like a human being. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're, he's perhaps exceeding expectations. But yeah, I did not like James Woods' performance in this at all. And I, I'm I'm not quite sure what happened first. Is it just that I didn't like him as an actor? Because I never have, even before I knew anything about his politics. But now that you know so much about his politics, it's even harder to give him any kind of benefit of the doubt. And what I, I think I don't think I've liked him since Once Upon a Time in America. Maybe yeah. I was actually I wanted to mention that specifically. This that this is what I'm getting to is that he's really unlikable in this, and it really works when he's meant to be unlikable because he's <laughs> yeah. deeply unlikable, and. I honestly can't really remember, like maybe in the last twenty years or twenty years ago, quite what I thought of James Woods. Hmm. I mean, he's popped up in occasional things where he's not really bothered me. He's in one of the Grand Theft Auto games, I think, yeah. San Andreas, and I remember it being a reasonably substantial role in that. Maybe because I couldn't see him, it didn't bother me so much. I don't really think I've seen him in all that much in recent years. But yes, the, the fact that the man is such a complete and utter asshat has has very much coloured my view of him. And you mentioned Once Upon a Time in America, and I was specifically going to mention that because Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in America is one of my all-time favourite films. I really, really love that film. I mean, his character's not a pleasant person, but I've not seen that in many, many years now as much as I like it. And it's partly because I'm afraid to go back and think that... <laughs> yeah. My enjoyment of of such a great film by a, such a great director and with really great performances from the likes of Robert De Niro in it too, I have a horrible feeling I'm, that film's going to be ruined for me because <laughs> of James Woods. Uh, so uh, it bothers me, and it's, I think this is a case where again I I am completely incapable of separating the art from the artist. But I don't know. Again, I, it's something like what you say too, Scott. Is I don't know if the problem is that. I don't like James Woods because he's James Woods. I don't like James Woods because he's not a good actor. And also I don't like James Woods. Yes. Uh, and I really, because I never saw him in a, in a huge number of films that I can recall. So I never really formed a particularly strong opinion of what I thought of him as an actor. Yeah. And it really is so long now since I saw Once Upon a Time in America that while I remember the events and I remember very much like it, I don't have a strong memory of any feeling, any emotion associated with it anymore. So I can't really remember what I think of, of his performance in that. I I must go back to that sometime soon. Because I love that film. Or at least I think I love that film. I hope I still do. <laughs> I'm scared to go back. He's... I get where you're coming from. That in this film, it's hard to buy him getting the conscience. Yeah. I'm not... It's, actually, I'm wondering, thinking about it now. Slightly different than I was thinking when I was watching it. But maybe it's just a performance thing. Because in large parts of it... He doesn't really seem interested in what he's doing. He also is a photographer that barely takes a photograph. Yeah, reluctantly. And when he's there, he's like, oh, I don't really want to do this. Uh, can I borrow a lens? Because he didn't bother bringing any lenses with him. Because yeah. you don't need that if you're a photographer. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, either 
he's incredibly confident he's got the right shot um, and is incredibly skilled or he really just doesn't even know how to use a camera because he barely uses a viewfinder <laughs> he just shoots a couple of shots off the hip at, um, from the hip at some point um, yeah. I do get the impression that him being a photographer was just a convenience to get him there <laughs> it seems like he's yawned in because there's a, a very awkward moment where he's asking someone to hand him another roll of Tri-X that seemed to serve no other purpose than oh yeah this guy's a photographer right um, yeah, put something photography related in. I thought that, yes. Because it, it, it was so very specifically tri like, That it feels like that's just there for photographers who would know what Tri-X is. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, I had to give him some sort of credentials as a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that seemed somewhat awkward. Although the the film was co-written by Oliver Stone and Richard Boyle. The real Richard Boyle. Well, obviously it can be co-written by the fictional, fictionalised <laughs> version. <laughs> Just making that clear to you, the things yeah. you'll learn by listening to our podcast, fictional <laughs> people can't write real things. But I do wonder too whether actually maybe him being a photographer, he would put that sort of thing in. It's like, oh, this will make it more real, mention the film type. Or, well, that's <laughs> important to him. But there are a lot of similar sort of situations in Latin American countries in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 70s and 80s in particular where the CIA and the US government were involved and all of, as I mentioned earlier, the the wars by proxy that took place during the Cold War um, all over the world and Latin America was one of the hotbeds of that. Why they were so terrified of communism, I've never understood. I think the Soviet army was going to walk into Nicaragua or Honduras or Salvador anytime soon. I think Cuba wasn't really a threat at any point beyond the, um, the 1960s when it was a potential base for missiles. Hmm. But there's certainly there, the fact that there was so much interventionism and the CIA just basically corrupting countries for the interest of the United States. That's a story worth telling. This film just kind of fails in doing it though, because it just everything is too black and white. And it's like, oh, these these people who are the represent the people, they're the farmers or the peasants. They're the good guys, and all the other people are the bad guys, and they're almost mustache twirling villains. Some of them. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like. Yeah, yeah, it's it doesn't work like that. Real life doesn't work like that. Yeah, when all the right wingers get their uh, evil council meeting near the start of it, that's a bit like a, a Doctor uh, Evil's sort of layer get of yeah, it's it, it sort of bondy, isn't it? The way they're sitting at the table and it's like, which one of you is going to go and kill Archbishop Romero and yeah. and use this bullet? <laughs> yeah, not subtle. <laughs> no, probably um, putting it. I, I suppose the bottom line is despite. All that I didn't hate Salvador. No, I, I think it, for anything else, the setting more than anything else is interesting because it's not. It really isn't that well known, and some of it is kind of how some of the like, the broad strokes are how it played out. Archbishop Romero was really outspoken um, at a time when the church was doing its usual thing of either supporting the right wing side of things or trying to keep out of it, hmm. when they could actually have a genuine impact for good. And that's why I mentioned. Jose Carlos Ruiz from his performance because you see a, a portion of his sermon mm-hmm. and it's it's a really powerful performance and it's only he's only in the film for a few minutes really yeah but when he's he's pleading with pleading with the people he's asking the National Guard in particular to obey the laws and obey God's law and that we're all the people and you're killing your people that sort of thing and the, he him making those outspoken statements did happen and he was assassinated and then the the influence of CIA and stuff, all of that stuff happened. So like the broad strokes are really, and it's interesting enough from that point of view. 
It's just that the details as presented in this film, there's like, eh, really? I think you could do a lot better, Oliver. A lot, lot better. <laughs> yeah. A guarded recommendation from us both, I think. Yeah. Again, because it's it really wasn't that well covered. I mean, and it's it's alluded to at the beginning of the film when James Woods says, you know, or rather James Woods is told by the news agency he's working for that basically no one cares about Salvador. Um, yeah. It's old news and it never got a lot of coverage despite the fact it being a war that affected an awful lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it's considerably less well known now. I mean, how often does El Salvador come up in the news? Approximately never, mm. <laughs> um, certainly in this country. And I don't imagine it's hugely different in the United States. I, mean, I think the only time I can remember it being mentioned would probably be some sort of earthquake or hurricane or something like that, maybe in the last decade. Yeah, maybe, yeah. I certainly can't remember it coming up politically. I mean, and I know the, the guy that became the, the president after the events of the film, and it was, he's only just mentioned once, maybe twice in passing, which is Jose Napoleon Duarte. I know that name. And he's a pretty unpleasant character, but even that just kind of sort of disappeared into the, into the past and never really got much mind share or media share in um, English-speaking countries at the very least. Yeah. I sort of lost track of what my point was there. I think I was saying possibly that there's some interest in here because you might not know about it. Was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was probably the gist of it. So then, we're going to move from the Civil War in Salvador to the Civil War in Lebanon. And Scott, you're going to tell us about Die Falschung. Yes, uh, Die Falschung, which of course is German for the Falschung. <laughs> I suppose just as El Salvador is Spanish for the Salvador. It's because, as we mentioned earlier, it's more commonly known in the English-speaking world as Circle of Deceit, but more on that later. In this film, journalist Jorg Lesjen, you know, played by Bruno Gantz is at a strange point in his marriage. Well, probably. Being a German, it's tough to know exactly what passes for normal in a relationship. But yes, given how that film starts with yes. um, the kid going, um, I need to go to school. It's like, nah, we'll just have a wee, we'll have some sex here instead. And then the kid just wanders off and so on. It's like, yeah, Germans so it's, are weird. It's, it's certainly an introduction that's challenging for uh, <laughs> conventional morality, shall we say. Um, yeah, so that amidst a, a tumult of arguments and make-up sex, Jorg leaves to cover the ongoing civil war in the stricken city of Beirut. Uh, he meets up with his fellow reporters and photographer Hoffman, played by Jersey Skolominski, in the least bombed out hotel currently available, and he sets about covering the various opportunities for human misery that what turned out to be a 15-year civil war can provide. While all this is going on, we unveil more of Jorg's character, and his largely cynical thoughts turn to coverage of the war itself. While it seems that he's more inclined to support one side over the other, continued exposure to both puts paid to any narrative of any side being the good guys. The fighting largely takes place during the night, although Jorg finds something to do during the day, reconnecting with Ariane Nassar, played by Hannah Shigulia, part of the now-closed German embassy staff that's chosen to stay behind. They begin, or rather resume, an affair, with Jorg starting to think that he could make a life with her, Ariane, however, is more concerned with having a baby, and as her previous marriage did not provide them, she's hopeful that she can buy one from an orphanage. So, it's not really the most joyous of films, on a great number of levels, uh, what with all the death, cynicism and moral ambiguity. Indeed, while uh, Jorg does at least get out alive, 
His head's no clearer than it was at the start of the film, and I can't help but thinking that Jorg's fate after the credits roll is an early death at the bottom of a bottle. This film must, I suppose, get a few brownie points for actually filming in Beirut, slap bang in the middle of the civil war it's set in, apparently the safer areas of the city, although that's very much a relative term. Top marks for dedication to the cast and crew, which produces some highly authentic feeling scenes as Jorg experiences the conflict firsthand. Although he would be advised to play a few more cover-based shooter games as training, <laughs> as he's a bit wander aimlessly through life fiery, which is contraindicated <laughs> in most war zones <laughs> situations. Yes, and and most journalists don't come with regenerating health. Yes, so it's, um, <laughs> it's a dangerous game he's playing right there. <laughs> Director Volker Schondorf is certainly unflinching in his examinations, whether that's of the horrendous results that this conflict produces, or indeed his lead character. York's not a particularly likeable guy, and there's little attempt made to excuse or explain his actions or thoughts. It may be a glitch in translation, but there's evidence that York's trying to fool himself about his own character. In the space of a few sentences, he goes from saying how he must report the truth to saying how he must sex it up to ensure that it sells newspapers. That may perhaps be some lost irony. My German's not strong enough to distinguish, but Jorg lying to himself, and perhaps the audience, uh, seems to be very much in his character. Which perhaps ties into the original title. A circle of deceit implies a journalist investigating some external deceit, and I suppose if you squint at it and apply the deceit is coming from Jorg, that might work. But the Falschung, which seems much more fitting as a title, the closest translation I can hit on is The Faker, you know, maybe the counterfeiter if you're being a bit more formal about it, but the faker seems to fit Jorg much better, although perhaps it's more fake emotions than fake news. It's a bold move to give us so little background and information about what's truly at the heart of Jorg's motivations and character, uh, but one I'm not sure pays off. It's also not doing all that much to tell us about the, nor- the war itself, leaving that mainly as an extended metaphor for Jorg's psyche knocking lumps out of itself. <laughs> Nominally, uh, we're here to compare this to Salvador, and there's certainly a through line there, both in the nature of the protagonist and the horrors of the events, but Salvador seems to want to wander between being a documentary of the situation as much as a character study, whereas the Falschung takes a much higher level view of the nature of war and the nature of humanity. In that respect, it reminds me more of Entranced Earth than Salvador, albeit without the dollops of crazy that Entranced Earth brought to the table and rolled about in while eating the tablecloth. <laughs> yes, I had um, I had the same thought too, that it was... It's a, it, uh, even Salvador was making me think of that a bit because all three of these films seem to have journalists not doing a great deal of journalism. <laughs> yeah. But Georg, Georg, um, however you pronounce it, I can't remember how the, actually the German speakers um, said it, he in particular was like the character in, in Trans Earth because he seems to have gone through part of the entire film and written about eight words. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's like, so what are you there for exactly? Because the, his compatriot Hoffman, who's the photographer, is taking lots and lots of photographs and yeah. Georg is mostly drinking <laughs> and going a bit mad. Yes. <laughs> uh, so it's quite the morality play then, but is it any good? Well, I guess. I've no complaints with the acting. I mean, Bruno Gantz puts on a pretty great performance as an unlikable character, but in general, when a film focuses on an unlikable character, it does make the film itself a bit unlikable, and that's very much what's happened with Devolution. Uh, it was one of those films that's good, I guess, but in no way enjoyable, and so hard to <laughs> unabashedly recommend. So, come, child, feast on your misery, and be nourished by your tears. Um, it's a bit of a downer. You know, you could perhaps take it as a downer when there's too much saccharine around. But yeah, it's another one of these qualified recommendations. I probably appreciated this more than Salvador. It certainly tries to paint a 
somewhat more complex picture of about the character and about the surroundings and the war, but it's not completely successful in doing so. It's sort of like entranced their light in a number of ways, <laughs> as I kind of mentioned. It's uh, it's an interesting film, and I think it is probably worth seeing. But you know, it's hard to say when you would actually want to fit this into your schedule. There's no obvious good time to jump into it. Yes, it's it's considerably less Looney. than um, <laughs> Trance Earth, which is a truly odd film. Um, <laughs> it is, I don't know, it's, it's sort of covering the war a bit, but yes, it seems more like it's some sort of extended metaphor for the mental collapse of this person. Yeah. Which doesn't really work, given you don't know what this person was like before. Yeah. <laughs> so you need to have some sort of trajectory there, upwards or downwards of a mental state, and just like not just like, uh, I'm going to go here, oh, I'm going crazy. I'm like, hey, I don't really know what things were like before. Is this normal behaviour for you? Or is have you gone under some sort of mental snap or something? Mm. Um, and, and certainly there are bits later in the film where clearly something is snapped because, well, why wouldn't you just randomly murder a person in a bomb shelter? <laughs> I'm really quite thrown by that scene because it doesn't seem like anything else in the film and I, I assume it's meant to be some sort of metaphor or allegory but I honestly can't work out for what Yeah, that seems so strange it just randomly kills a person and then washes the blood off and then doesn't seem to think about it again mm. <laughs> I, I'm completely baffled by the purpose of that event it's certainly interesting and I realised that I never knew a great deal about the the Lebanese Civil War. No. Like, like, when it was happening, we were too young to, to really comprehend it. All I really remember, Scott, I don't know about you, but the thing I remember most is that Beirut was a dangerous place and Terry Waite and John McCarthy got held hostage when they went over there to try and... Or Terry Waite was a um, Church of England envoy, so he was going over there to try and sort of intercede mm. in a, a helpful way. John McCarthy was a journalist, I think. But largely that all I remember of it because... That was the early 80s. We were just beginning primary school. Yeah, I probably couldn't have told you any of the details of the conflict. I just knew that Beirut was a sort of cinematic shorthand for dangerous city to be in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, (laughs) and I think there were a few, both in real life and in film, I think, plane hijackings that were to do with Hezbollah and Mm -hmm. Lebanese terrorists or Lebanese soldiers in the 1970s. I never really understood it in that it was, you know, at least four different um, faiths and five or six different ethnic groups involved because there are Christians and a rather obscure group of people known as the Druze, there are Arab Muslims, there are Palestinian Muslims, there are Jews and the Sharks, the Jets. Also the fact that Lebanon before the Civil War, really really prosperous Mm. in that region one of the most prosperous areas and it was considered beautiful and it was secular and it was actually a pretty decent place yeah you know until that war screwed up so i never knew all that much about it so it's interesting historically again it's probably better known largely because of beirut as a sort of a focal point but it's better than known than the war in el salvador but mm. again from that point of view it's just an, an interesting setting and it's Pretty remarkable that they shot in the real place while yeah. the war was happening. That's ballsy. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of it being a successful narrative, probably not, because I'm not really sure what it was saying or why. But more successful than the Trans Earth, because that was just crazy. <laughs> yes, this this does make some attempt at a narrative. Just, just, just enough of a token one to let you appreciate it. <laughs> 
yeah, I, I, I think probably what it's come out of this film for me is less a recommendation to go and watch this film as it is more a desire for me to go and watch uh, some more Volker Scholdorf's films because I do not believe I have seen any uh, you know, uh, you know I, I may know more you know, German cinema than a lot of other countries but I've still not seen very many of them uh, so I'd like to see a few more of the films that he's made. As for this one uh, it's as I say it's interesting it's got a lot of interesting ideas in there I don't think it's quite nailed together um, I, maybe there's something that's lost in translation a little bit or something we don't quite get the subtleties of what's going on with Bruno Gantz's character's mind about his condition that he's explaining it but it, it all seems a little bit um, on the nose when he's sitting in his hotel, his hotel room typing up notes that was before or less I am going crazy now wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that sort of thing I don't know it, 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 it's a strange film that's um, again it's perhaps more of a character study and the fact that he's a journalist is almost beside the point apart from it got to put him in a stressful situation where he could unravel a bit yeah, interesting film, interestingly shot, and lots of some interesting ideas in there. It's just a bit too much of a downer to really, yeah. you know, solidly recommend to anyone. It's also, I, I'm not sure if it, if it means anything, um, but it's linguistically all over the place. Mm. Because, yes, okay, he's speaking in German because he's German and he's from Germany in the film, and the film's German, okay. Mm. But he spends quite a lot of time talking to his German colleague who came from him, came with him from <laughs> Germany and works in the same German paper and lives in the same German city of Hamburg. He spends a lot of time speaking to him in English yeah. for some reason. And then there's a lot of people, because it was a French colony, a lot of people in Lebanon speaking French. And then there's people speaking in Arabic too. Yeah. But it doesn't always seem to make sense why people are speaking in any particular language at the time <laughs> it's not like this group of people speak arabic and we'll speak arabic with them and this group of people speak french it's like well sometimes this guy speaks french but then he's actually speaking german in another scene to the same people who were speaking french to earlier but clearly you're german and he's german so why are we speaking french to each other earlier when there was nobody french around <laughs> i don't know i mean i take a stab that maybe that was some sort of metaphor for his fractured mind or something but i don't think so because it doesn't really make a lot of sense but it doesn't make a lot of sense that the two german people were speaking to each other regularly in english either yeah particularly when there's not like the token english guy around or anything like that yeah he could um, be doing it for his benefit or anything it was just just done for some reason yeah talking of the token english guy though there's um but there's one english guy that is in a couple of scenes but not really important to the film but as i'm used when they arrive at the hotel in Beirut at the beginning, and there's the English, I think he's a reporter as well, mm. and he starts in a very sort of clunky exposition style explaining where the hotel is and that they're actually right between the lines and that the the fighting always happens at night and it might become like just up to the steps of the hotel, basically, that sort of thing. Yeah. That, well, I don't think it's the right idea. I think it's the, the actor's performance, but it's done exactly like as if he was a news reporter giving a story to camera for the news but he's talking to people casually um who've just arrived at the hotel and he's speaking to them in a normal conversation he delivers this whole scene like he's um on the news and giving a lowdown of the situation to the audience it's so strange yeah so there are a few bits in that film so there's that and there's the i say 
I mean, it's not like they're using English to try to appeal to a British and US audience or anything like that, because there are at least four different languages being used in this film, and it's mostly subtitles. It's not It's not that. There's, the two Germans will randomly speak English to each other when they're alone for, okay, well, why not? <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> so I don't know if there is something more meaningful about that, or that, that bit of the film was just a bit weird. <laughs> Yeah, it just confused me. It's like that, I don't understand why you're doing that. But it's certainly an interesting film. I just is it successful? You know, I can't actually answer that because I'm not entirely convinced. I know what it was trying to do, so I can't uh, <laughs> decide whether it, it succeeded in doing something that I wasn't sure what the purpose was. Like, why? Yes. Why in these films with journalists do so few people actually do any journalism? <laughs> yeah, yeah. For for a for a series of podcasts, where we thought we'd talk about journalism and film an awful lot of it hasn't really involved a great amount of journalism so <laughs> maybe we'll have to revisit this at some point in actual journalism in films <laughs> as opposed to fake lying journalism like these ones have been this is fake news don't listen to trump this is what fake news is they tell you it's a film about journalism but they don't do any <laughs> I suppose it does make defilshing an appropriate name though because it's like the faker because the whole film's a fake there's no journalism in this <laughs> So well, I, I guess that will wrap us up for now for journalism. Maybe we will revisit it. Who knows? We'll stick it back on the topic rotation and get to it in another 10 years, maybe. But I guess until that time. Do we have anything on the Twitters? I asked on Twitter, which films have done a good job of tackling war reporting? Um, and does that topic need a central character to lead the audience in? We only have one response, alas, but that's from Exploding Helicopter at Chopper Fireball, who just said... The Killing Fields has got to be up there. Which I'm pretty sure I've not seen. And it's one of those films I know a lot about, so I never really felt the need to see it because I, I learned so much about it over the years, but I should probably remedy that. I've certainly heard very good things, if harrowing things, about it. Yeah, it's one of the one of a number of 80s films about sort of war journalism, is it? Just going by the... Uh, just go, Again, this, this, this nugget brought to you by IMDb's trivia page, but... Obviously, Salvador under fire, eighty-three circle of deceit, witness in the war zone was eighty-seven, cry freedom, also eighty-seven, you know, killing fields in eighty-four, year of living dangerously in eighty-two. So, yes, uh, war journalism in particular would almost be enough to support a podcast by itself. So, yes, a, a good number of things I might actually need to catch up with them. Of that list, I don't. Apart from the two, obviously, we've covered here. I don't think I've actually seen any of them. Yes, something another another thing to remedy. Gosh. Yes, and there is. Uh, a factual um, film that calls falls that I can't do that. I think I can speak for Craig because he remain, uh, recommended it to both of us a couple of years ago. Um, I haven't seen myself and I've forgotten the name of it. But a documentary about a war photographer that might be worth watching. McCullen. McCullen, that's the one. Yes, um, McCullen, which uh, I believe Craig recommended um, some years ago. So you could probably take, we'll just pass on that recommendation to you. If you're looking for more in this sphere. Yes, yeah, so I, I guess that will do us for today. Uh, thanks for everyone who's got in touch with us over the past couple of weeks on Twitter. Please keep that up. You can do so on the Twitter website. Uh, we're there at Fuds on Film. You can also reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fuds on Film, or by email at podcast at Fuds on Film. We'll be back with you in a mere 10 days or so with a look at some random films from this month and until that time take care of yourself and each other I've been Scott Morris and Drew Tavendale has most certainly been Drew Tavendale it's true it is absolutely true goodbye bye